Grunge, sometimes called the Seattle Sound, is first and foremost a derivative of alternative rock. While it initially emerged in the mid-1980s, it became widely known in the early 1990s as the genre spread from Washington to other West Coast states, and by the time the mid-90s rolled around, grunge had become commercially successful. The lyrical content of grunge music was often angsty, containing themes of social alienation, neglect, and social and emotional isolation. In the MIT article A Brief History of Metal, it describes grunge lyrics with a mood of resigned despair. It seems that grunge music was, in every sense, obsessed with disenfranchisement. Grunge riffs focused on a slow, heavy, sludgy sound. Many grunge guitarists focused on high-energy playing rather than a show of technical skill or precision. Grunge music was also characterized by a high level of guitar distortion. Distortion pedals, such as the DS-1, played a massive role in giving the guitar the ugly dredging sound that defined grunge. Grunge fashion often seemed everyday, or something that musicians would wear at home. Flannels, beiges and grays, and an unkept thrifted look was popular. This look contrasted heavily with the done-up and wild looks of punks. This everyday look can be attributed to maintaining a sense of authenticity. Grunge was founded on the idea of being the person you always were and not fronting about who you really were offstage. It's unsurprising that with the cynical culture of the 90s youth that grunge music caught on, but how did it initially form? Seattle is considered the major crux of the grunge subculture. While the first grunge album is near impossible to directly pinpoint, many cite Green River's EP Come On Down as one of the first. The previous members would go on to form Mud Honey, a band widely credited with spreading the Seattle grunge movement. Many early grunge concerts were sparsely attended, oftentimes with fewer than a dozen people. When coverage of the underground scene appeared in Melody Maker, a British magazine, interest in the shows began to rise. Even at this time, copycats that were imitating the Seattle sound began to crop up, causing many grunge bands to diversify their sound. By the late 80s, grunge began to find its way to the mainstream. Soundgarden became the first grunge band to sign a major record label, with Alice in Change following suit, signing to Columbia Records and releasing their debut album, Facelift. I've mentioned many well-known bands, as well as a few lesser-known acts, but it's impossible to talk about grunge music without covering the three-man act from Aberdeen, Washington. Yes! <laughs> Nirvana rules! Yeah, yeah, <laughs> cool. Possibly the most well-known grunge band, Nirvana was pivotal in grunge reaching popular culture. Their first album backed by a major record label, Nevermind, was a smash hit. It was the first single off the album, Smells Like Teen Spirit, that propelled the band into the mainstream and radio play. It seemed to be an anthem encompassing all of the cynicism of the 90s. While this song has been named one of the most influential tracks in rock history, and a song that defines a generation, Nirvana became increasingly unhappy with the track's mainstream popularity. I think the New York Times put it best. Smells Like Teen Spirit could be this generation's version of the Sex Pistols 1976 Anarchy in the UK if it weren't for the bitter irony that pervades its title. As Nirvana knows only too well, Teen Spirit is routinely bottled, shrink-wrapped, and sold. Nirvana's Nevermind is indisputably influential. To grunge, yes, but the album also proved that there was money to be made off alternative rock. This marked a turning point in grunge culture. It seemed that the very same people who criticized grunge in its infancy were co-opting the movement now that it had become cool to do so. It was our thing, and then all of a sudden it belonged to people who you, you never thought you were sharing your music with, like mainstream periodicals and fashion magazines. And, and he started realizing, well, there's a whole lot of people out there making money by selling the idea of the Seattle scene or grunge or whatever. Stores began to market grunge fashion to consumers, upcharging on flannels and knit ski hats that only a few years prior could be found in thrift stores for a few dollars. Grunge became the new buzzword of marketers. As mass media began to toss around the word, Seattle scene members began to refer to the term as the G word. Grunge began to face backlash in Seattle, and many prominent grunge bands were uncomfortable with the success they received. Kurt Cobain was quoted, famous is the last thing I wanted to be. 
A subculture formed by nonconformists, taken over by mass media, exploited for cash. Where could the culture go from here? While it's hard to pinpoint when grunge ended, I think that the opening line of Nirvana's Serve the Servants, Teenage Angst has paid off well, Now I'm Bored and Old, encompasses the feelings of many grunge fans towards the mid-90s. Many bands broke up or lost prominence. In April of 1994, Kurt Cobain was found dead in his Seattle home. Although Cobain never wanted to be the frontman of grunge, he had become synonymous with the culture. His death marked the death of the authentic subculture. Pop culture could continue to use the word, could continue to push this or that band into the spotlight, but the youth who were drawn to the subculture for its authenticity knew all too well that it had become disingenuous. Not the happiest of endings, but I don't think a subculture like this could ever be sustained once the mainstream media got a hold of it. Grunge died the moment it became inauthentic, and I think we can learn a lesson from that.